You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report podcast. More specifically, the questions for Corbett podcast, that regular series where you send in the questions and I provide some answers. And as always, there are many different ways to get your questions in for this series, including, of course, the contact form on CorbettReport.com, where you can either type in a message or you can record audio of yourself leaving a question for consideration for next uh, edition of this podcast. Or perhaps more to the point, Corbett Report members can log in to this particular post on CorbettReport.com and leave your question in the comment section. And on that note, we'll turn to the comment section from the previous edition of this series where I did a World War I question and answer session for the uh, kickoff of today's questions and, uh, and answers. And specifically, we're going to look at a question that came in from UKJC who wrote, is there a connection between the dreadful intercept post here and the BBC producers' tweets regarding Duma discussed here, oh, virtually nowhere other than this channel, this site, and, of course, here. Link, 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 link. I guess the very simple questions are, was there a connection between the two Intercept and BBC producers' tweets? And whatever the response to the latter, has any one of us found a direct criticism of the former? Okay, thank you, UKJC, and I hope people will go and follow those various links that are provided in that comment so they have the better context of what's uh, being talked about here. But long story short, this is, of course, a follow-up to Fake News Story of the Year 2018 for anyone who watched the Fake News Awards this year. Yes, of course, we're talking about the fake and staged chemical attack in Duma, chemical attack in quotation marks in Duma in April of 2018, which the commander-in-chief bravely got up and launched a bunch of Tomahawk missiles into Syria in response to because his daughter was crying about, think of the poor children. So uh, this all relates to an Intercept video that recently came out. The Intercept, of course, being the phony... Uh, limited uh, PSYOP hangout of Glenn Greenwald and his uh, fellow gatekeeper cronies uh, that was founded uh, by Pierre Omidyar, who, again, is a shady character that people should look into um, and who I have talked about on the podcast here before. Um, But they released a video about this Duma attack purporting to answer what really happened in Duma, but, of course, not answering that at all. And uh, it's such a, a... pathetic and and ridiculous post that one wonders why they even bothered to put it out at all, other than, of course, to bolster the official story that the evil animal Assad just for no reason launched a chemical attack on a population right next to his own, you know, the government-controlled forces area. It was just such a logical move, right? Anyway, uh, as a lot of people in the comment section of that YouTube video were pointing out, uh, the expert that the Intercept relied on included uh, an Atlantic Council fellow who receives funding from the National Endowment for Democracy, a.k.a. the CIA. So go and look through the comments on that Intercept video and you'll see no one is buying it. You'll also see that YouTube has age-restricted that video. So apparently the court report is not the only one that is being hit by age restrictions on videos um, of political but non-controversial nature. Speaking of which, World War I Conspiracy Part 2 and Part 3 have both been age-restricted, in case you didn't notice. I hope you didn't didn't notice, because I hope you're watching none of my material on YouTube.com. 
of course, there are many other ways to get it. And the best place to go is corporatereport.com, where you can find many different ways to access all of my work, um, including directly off of my servers, which is the way to go, where there is no age restriction and you don't have to sign in and, I don't know, give your next of kin to watch my video reports. Um, but yes, in case anyone did miss it, the BBC's Syria producer did tweet that Quote, after almost six months of investigations, I can prove without a doubt that the Duma hospital scene was staged. No fatalities occurred in the hospital. And he goes on to say that while the attack, an attack did happen there, sarin was not used, as was confirmed by the OPCW, as I talked about in the Fake News Awards, and that, quote, everything else around the attack was manufactured for maximum effect. So, wait, did you see that? story at the top of BBC News recently? Oh, neither did I. I wonder why. But anyway, that's what the BBC Syria producer tweeted out, or at least that's what people are reporting he tweeted out because his tweets are protected, so you have to be uh, one of his chosen followers to be able to read his tweets. But anyway, that's what apparently was tweeted out by the BBC Syria producer recently. I have no evidence of any connection between that tweet and the Intercept video. I know nothing about any sort of connection there. If anyone has any details on that, that would be interesting to hear. But I imagine the Intercept was just working on that report, and I imagine it just lined up. But again, if there's any evidence that there was any sort of direct connection there, I'd be interested to hear it from anyone in the audience. Let's move on to the next question, a question from Tim. He says, I greatly admire and appreciate your hard work. I've been listening and watching for some time. I share your work with as many as I can. I came across this article, link, in my Google News feed of all places and wondered if you'd seen it. It makes a logical economic argument against data being the new oil, at least on the surface. There is no mention of government contracts or personal liberty, except that we freely use the services of big tech companies and grant them permission to mine our info, which I actually agree with. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on the matter. May God bless you and your family. All right. Thank you very much for the question, Tim. And let's delve into this. First, of course, I would hope that everyone knows right now that what is being referenced here is my podcast episode on Data is the New Oil, which I did uh, produce in the wake of the Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary. If you haven't seen that podcast yet, please do take a look at it. I think it's an important one. Um, but uh, let's take a look at what he's talking about. He's talking about specifically a Wired.com article called No, Data is Not the New Oil. <laughs> Pretty bluntly put. So what is their ultimate argument? Well, it boils down to essentially an economic argument basically pointing out that this analogy isn't 100% face-to-face, -face, guys. <laughs> this is, you can't just say data and oil and, and treat them as the same thing because... Quote, quote, uh, dot, 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 quote, data isn't the new oil in almost any metaphorical sense, and it's supremely unhelpful to perpetuate the analogy. Oil is literally a liquid, fungible, and transportable commodity. The global market is designed to take a barrel of oil from the Gawar oil field in Saudi Arabia and, as frictionlessly as possible, easy for you to say, turn it into a heated apartment in Boston or a moving computer, commuter bus in New York. With data, by contrast, the abstract bits are functional static. <laughs> End quote. Well, duh. <laughs> Oil is a liquid and data is a thing. <laughs> They're not the same at all. <laughs> I don't know. I, I get that there is a, a kind of important point about ways commodities function and the markets that develop around them and how they can be quite different. Okay, I get all of that. So I'm not disputing any of that. I don't think that's at all what my data is the new oil podcast was actually about. So I, again, I hope you'll go and take a look at that. Um, 
for the first time or again um, to familiarize yourself with the concepts there. But perhaps more to the point, I think the article, this article at Wired isn't just about the economics of how various commodities function in the economy kind of thing. This is this is actually leading up to a bigger punchline, and the sleight of hand is revealed towards the end of the article, where they write, partly due to this legislative pressure that they talk about here in the article, partly due to their failing to com- compete against the data majors, that third-party data ecosystem is already imploding, i.e. selling data for money. Axiom, a market leader in third-party data that dates back to the direct mail days, sold its marketing solutions division to an ad agency. The ecosystem will be lucky to survive the coming flurry of regulation, much less grow. Ultimately, the majors like Google and Facebook will raise the castle walls around their data and users and disclaim any knowledge of data brokering, the data-as-oil traders. It'll be first-party data all around, publishers, apps, and e-commerce all huddling around their data and user piles, projecting that data externally in data-safe ways if absolutely necessary, but not otherwise. No, data isn't the new oil, and it never will be, because the biggest data repositories don't want it to be. All right, here's the crux of their argument. They're basically saying that data is, yes, it's precious in a sense. You can find a way to not exactly commoditize it, but capitalize on it um, because you can tailor to various functions of your, your whatever you're doing based on the data you're getting from users. So you can make use of it, but you can't exactly, it, you, you can sell it in this current environment, but they're going to come in with all the regulations against that and all this, all these scandals about third parties coming in and, and, and selling your data and buying your data and trading your data. That's all going to end because of all these regulations. So that's essentially the crux of the argument here. And I think it misses three important things. Number one, there is no evidence for any slowdown in this third-party data ecosystem that they talk about here at all. Um, it, it just look at a look at the our privacy subreddit, for example, and to see the bajillions of examples that are coming out every single day, and more and more being discovered about different ways that your data is being sold or uh, otherwise traded behind your back. Um, but secondly. Uh, they they talk as if the third-party data uh, ecosystem, well, of course, that's bad, that these companies like Axiom and others are trading and buying and selling your data behind your back and doing whatever else with it. But they make it sound like, well, okay, so the castle wall system, the second-party data ecosystem, the, you give your data to Facebook and Facebook uses it to improve their whatever feeds or whatever it is or tailor advertising to you that's okay i mean that's all right because it's it's just they're holding that data safe and sound and in, in their little castle walls and it'll never be traded outside the company so it's okay well no that isn't okay only giving your data directly to the fang does not allay the fundamental concerns about how this data is being used in numerous ways including used to shape your behavior, shape the way you think, shape the way you perceive the world, shape what you do, shape what you buy, shape who you are. And if you need just a just a toe, dip a toe into the waters of what that really means, you can take a look at the exceptionally creepy Selfish Ledger uh, video, the internal Google video that was leaked uh, about a year ago that reveals some very creepy ways that this data can be used against you, even if it's only within the castle walls of each of these fang monstrosities. And then the third thing that this misses is that, of course, 
Fang, the Fang companies, are wedded at the hip to the intelligence agencies that birthed them. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. I will continue to talk about it. But the deep state, whatever you want to call it, is Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is the deep state in so many different ways. The obvious and in-your-face ways, like InQtel, the investment arm of the CIA investing in uh, various tech upstarts, to the, the more insidious ways, the, the undisclosed and undisclosable uh, relationship that exists between Google and the NSA, for example. And I've talked about this before. Again, I'll talk about it in the future. But that is the real crux of this, is that the, the fundamental point I was making in data is the new oil is that oil was oh, not just a commodity flowing through the economy. It was a way of structuring society. We, we literally built the, the highways and the infrastructure of our society around this new uh, technology or the technologies that this commodity enabled, like the internal combustion engine, the car, etc., etc. Well, in the same way, our entire society is going to be shaped and ordered around the products that are derived from this new commodity. Well, maybe it's not a commodity, but whatever it is, this data that f is going to form the basis of the smart, interconnected Internet of Things 5G global enslavement grid. And that's the point of this. So, yeah, there may be some economic quibble about the analogy going on here, but that doesn't get to the fundamental point, which is a much deeper point. Once again, to get to that point, please go to my Data is the New Oil podcast, and hopefully you can get a better sense of what it is I really mean by that and why this Wired article does not exactly address that. So thank you again for that question, Tim. It was, it was good to clarify that and get that... Uh, at least somewhat sorted out. Uh, let's get to a question from Julie, who writes, uh, could you debunk or confirm the mainstream story that's been going around that polar bears are invading a Russian archi archipelago due to warming of the ice? Apparently, the bears are mig migrating to the archipelago because of lack of ice. Is this propaganda, or is there a grain of truth to it? Is this just a normal migrating pattern, but being spun into pulling our heartstrings for the plight of the bears? All right, for those who don't know, this is about a story that has been making the rounds in the lamestream dinosaur media, including, for example, Washington Post. A mass invasion of polar bears is terrorizing an island town. Climate change is to blame. <laughs> uh, fences have risen around kindergartens. Special vehicles transport military personnel to the work sites. Residents of the island settlement are afraid to leave their homes. Novaya Zemlaya is a Russian archipelago stretching into the Arctic Ocean. It once played host to Soviet nuclear tests, including the largest man-made explosion when the King of Bombs detonated in 1961, releasing 50 megatons of power and deepening an arms race that threatened to turn the Cold War hot. Today, the barren landscape is under siege from dozens of polar bears locked in their very own sort of hot war. Marine ecologists have long been warning of the peril posed by global warming for the vulnerable species. In the far reaches of Russia, the situation has become traumatic for humans, too. Dot, 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 etc., etc. So go and read the mainstream, lamestream, lying, fake news reports about this. But if you want to know the actual story behind this, let's go to an actual polar bear scientist at polarbearscience.com. Of course, as I hope my listeners will remember, this is the website of Susan Crockford. And you might, you might remember that because I have re referenced her in the past regarding 
my work on polar bears. Yes, polar bears is becoming something of its own category of Corbett Report reports because it symbolizes everything that's wrong with the uh, shoddy make-believe climate change uh, f- fraud nonsense that's going on. Well, let's let's dig into this report. Specifically, she has a post up, Polar bears walking the streets of Novaya Zemlaya are habituated garbage bears, not victims of climate change. Uh, she writes, what a bunch of sensationalist claptrap about the polar bears on Novaya Zemlaya, but I guess it sells papers and raises donations. WMF, WWF and PBI, I mean you. Uh, seriously, if you were coming for uh, if the bears were coming for us, people in Belushaya Guba would have died already, probably eaten. These particular bears know there is stored food and refuse available that does not come packaged in human form, and they know from experience that humans won't hurt them. As I pointed out in my last post, these bears have known this since early December when they chose to stay on land over the winter and ignored the sea ice when it arrived. Lack of sea ice is not the problem here. These are habituated garbage bears that are no longer safe to have around. The responsible option is to shoot them. It's harsh, I know, but the population will recover from the loss. Uh, It goes on and on. Uh, There's so much more detail here, and I don't want to just leave it here because people will think that's the whole of the argument. There's a lot of detail here, but I do want to point out this other part before uh, we we, uh, wrap this up. She says, blaming this on climate change is the Paul Nicklin starving polar bear video all over again. You remember the one, the video that National Geographic got so much pushback about that they had to make a public apology for spreading misinformation? And if you don't remember that, well, turn back to the first annual uh, Fake News Awards, where I did cover that story, uh, awarded uh, the Fake Climate Scare of the Year Award to National Geographic for pimping that fake polar bear story, which they then did actually uh, publicly apologize for later last year. Um, But yes, long story short, this is a a hot pile of garbage that, that is being shoved down people's throats because everyone for some reason, loves to talk about polar bears with regards to climate change. It's it's just that touchstone. Thank you, Coca-Cola, for embedding the polar, cute, cuddly polar bears in our imagination as the touchstone of this fake climate science. But that's, again, there's a lot more detail there. I hope you'll look into Susan Crockford's post there, which, of course, will be linked up, as with everything I talk about, in the show notes for today's episode at CorporateReport.com. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one coming in from Liz. Liz writes... When did they start talking about climate change? Did the media start the propaganda as early as 1958? It's unusual for the weather to be so muggy this time of year. Yes, uh, I read an article the other day that claimed the world's weather was changing. Really? That's interesting. Yes, isn't it? Thank you for the question, Liz, and good eye in spotting what would otherwise be an unremarkable throwaway line from an old movie, but actually does provide a window into a larger and more important story. So let's climb through that window and explore that story. First of all, by noting that, of course, even the proponents of the aptly named orthodoxy of the climate religion would uh, would no doubt exhort us to remember that, yes, of course, climate change and the mechanism of climate change has been known for over a century since Svante Arrhenius developed the equations behind the, the greenhouse effect, and we've understood that man has some sort of climate uh, influence in the post-industrial or the industrial age, and blah-de-blah-de-blah, uh, blah, blah, so... 
this is all well known and it's been known since before 1958. Well, yes, that's true insofar as it goes. But the, the more important truth is that climate scare stories and fake news about climate and, oh my God, the sky is falling stories have been around for much longer, including uh, chatter about how humans are changing the Earth's climate invariably and it's going to lead to climate chaos and, and catastrophe. Um, now, we can document this and talk about it from a number of different angles, one of which will occur, I'm sure, to everyone in the audience right away is, of course, the global cooling scare that was all the rage in the 1970s, which the debunkers of the climate uh, science religion would come, out, come in and say, oh, that was, that was just something that was hyped by the media. No scientist seriously thought there was going to be global cooling. Well, <laughs> uh, fact check on that one. Uh, I will direct people to realclimatescience.com where Tony Heller has amassed a lot of evidence on a lot of different threads regarding the climate scare, but one of them in particular, I'll point you to a post where he talks about the roots of the modern global warming scare, and he does talk about that 1970s global cooling scare, uh, including the scientific conference at which it was developed and propounded, and then the scientists who wrote to the White House warning about this global cooling and, oh, something must be done, because again, you know, humans are responsible for for determining the climate. And not only can they change the climate, they are, and they must do so again in order to change it back, just as we are now hearing from the people who want to geoengineer the Earth so that uh, we can get back to whatever it is, whatever climate uh, stability they think used to exist. Um, but... In fact, and that's a fascinating part of the story, but as I say, this goes back not only to 1958, but well before 1958. In fact, before Arrhenius and the whole greenhouse effect and all of that, back into the mid-19th century, at the very least, we can find documentation on this. And uh, for this, I'll point you to Tony Hiller's YouTube channel, which featured a video about, uh, he was talking about the Australian climate uh, scare and the droughts, and uh, this is an irrefutable proof of climate change, and this is what man-made climate change looks like. Uh, again, failing in to take into account some of the historical record about Australia and its drought and flood cycle, uh, which Tony Hiller is pointing out in this clip, in which he talks about some of the previous examples of the media in Australia freaking out about climate change back in the 19th century. In fact, experts have been misinterpreting cyclical changes in weather as being due to climate change since at least 1871. This is an article from the Brisbane Courier dated January 10, 1871, titled Imaginary Changes of Climate. A plentiful crop of speculation from weather prophets and projectors and half-instructed meteorologists and all the philosophic tribe of Laputa in general to whom the periodical press now affords such fatal facilities. Almost every season is sure to be extraordinary. Almost every month one of the driest or wettest or windiest, coldest or hottest ever known. Much observation which ought to correct a tendency to exaggerate seems in some minds to have rather a tendency to increase it. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's exactly the same thing as going on now. A press obsessed with climate change and climate experts exaggerating statistics. This obsession with imaginary climate change actually started much earlier than 1871. Here's an article from 1846 on the change of climate in Australia. That great changes have taken place in the climate of Australia, all testimonies satisfactorily proved. 
So very long story short, yes, uh, the idea of man-made climate change goes back not only to 1958, but well before 1958, and has been recognized for a very long time by the would-be planners of society as a convenient tool for manipulating the masses into desiring their own enslavement in a number of ways and desiring the end of the human race because humans are a cancer on the planet and all of that nonsense, which I've debunked many times here on the podcast. I'll just once again exhort you to go uh, to realclimatescience.com and look through some of some more of the historical examples. Uh, there are many, 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 many more examples talking about uh, uh, glaciers. Glaciers are receding at an unbelievable pace. Glaciers are advancing at an unbelievable pace every single time, saying this is unnatural, unprecedented. It's the end of the world as we know it. Only for a few years later for the exact opposite phenomenon to happen. And then the, uh, this is the very same media to freak out about it. Again, this can, this can and has been documented. So yes, there is a long pedigree to this. And let's not skip an opportunity to remind people that, of course, the big climate scare was a deliberately engineered scare in order to make man the enemy of humanity, or humanity the enemy of man, whichever way they particularly phrased it in the Club of Rome's 1991 tract on the first global revolution. Um, that, again, incredibly important uh, passage, which I've cited many times and which I will just leave as a cookie crumb for you to follow the cookie crumb trail down to the show notes and read more about that. Uh, let's move on to the next question from Linda, who writes, I've just watched an interview of Larry McDonald, who was a Democratic senator in the early 80s, and the two interviewers sat either side of him and barraged him with questions without giving him time to answer. Three months later, he was dead. He was in an airliner shot down over Russia. I wondered if you'd ever covered this guy. Thank you for the question, Linda, and yep, I have. Type Larry McDonald into the search engine of CorbettReport.com and... Lo and behold, the very first result will answer your question. Uh, let's move on to question from Saeed Shed. Shed. <laughs> I'm undoubtedly pronouncing that wrong. Saeed. I've been trying to get a look at the membership list of Chatham House. Wikipedia tells us there are 3,000 plus individual members, but it looks like they don't want you to know the names. Any link to a membership list? Thank you for the question. Uh... Short answer, not that I know of, uh, at least not, I think, in the sense that you mean. Of course, there is an institutional member list that is available on their website and includes all the sort of Fortune 500 and other types of institutions that you would expect to be on such a list, much like the CFR's corporate member list. But again, look through it and see if uh, an institution that you're interested in is on that list. There are a lot of corporate members of Chatham House. Uh, for people who don't know at all what we're talking about here, Chatham House, of course, is the the informal name of the Royal Institute uh, for International Affairs, uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, I correct myself, which I did wrote, write about recently in Know Your Enemy, the Royal Institute of International Affairs for the International Forecaster, uh, which is where you can get some idea of the historical background of this institution and what it does, and you'll get some idea of who it was founded by and some of the early proponents and, and people who are floating around it. But as as far as I know, there's no official membership list. And I think they cloud the issue even more because at least on their website, they talk about members of the RIIA, including people who so much as subscribe to their magazine. So I'm assuming we're not looking for their magazine subscription membership list. We're looking for the who are the movers and shakers in this quasi-secretive organization. It's a secretive organization that operates out in the open, very much like the CFR. In fact, it is the sister 
the or the older sister, I guess, of the CFR. It was created basically out of the same conversations that were happening in 1919 in Paris at the Peace Conference, and um, uh, the British side started the RIA, and the American side started the CFR, etc., etc. Again, all of that information is in my article, but for more of the names of the people who are floating around in the RIIA milieu, and the Milner Group, and the Cecil Block, and all of that, again, specifically, Harkening back to the last episode of this series on uh, the World War I question and answer, where I recommended The Anglo-American Establishment by Carol Quigley, I will similarly recommend you that book um, for at least the early 20th century incarnation of this group and some of the people who were swirling around in that, although not a definitive membership list. He does give a sort of this is who I think was part of the clique here and who was part of the clique there kind of list, which... Um, at least goes some way towards answering that question. But as in the 21st century, uh, again, uh, there's not a membership list that I know of. If anyone has one, I'm more than happy to see it. Um, but we can certain, certainly surmise from some of their favorite authors and historians and pet um, academics who might be in the RIIA orbit right now. And I will similarly point to an interesting uh, article about World War One that was recently in the uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs, International Affairs magazine, uh, penned by none other than the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George, who we did talk about in Histories Written by the Winners. So, hmm, interesting. There's still the same characters, literally the same bloodlines floating around that organization. Okay, anyway, uh, now, finally, uh, as is our want here on Cor Questions for Corbett, I'm going to s finish today by turning the questions around to you, because here's a good question that came in that I don't have a definitive or or uh, exemplary answer for, so I'm going to ask the people in the audience on your opinion on this. Uh, this is a question uh, from James, not me, <laughs> question from James, who writes, I'd like to get your take on something, but first, I bought a new computer recently, I was adding you to my bookmarks, and the virusware flagged your website as, I forget the exact term, but essentially fake news. Interesting, but CNN gets a pass? I wonder how you made that list. I added you anyway, so all is well. Anyway, you may have already answered this. If so, just point me in the right direction. But what are your thoughts on the common man trying to invest? Holding cash long-term is a loser's game. Gold is great as a store of value, but not a great investment, in the traditional sense of the term. The stock market seems an obvious decision, buying pieces of business, but there is clearly shenanigans involved at the highest level, and since we're not operating in a true free market, most of the corporations have their hand in the crony capitalist cookie jar, leaving a libertarian liking the idea of a stock market but hating the actual corporations they would be investing in. I've heard you say it's rigged, but what's a guy to do? As stated above, I can't just sit on cash, and gold holds its value over the long term, but that's about it. Is playing the stock market the practical avenue for the average Joe? Yes, I know starting a business is an option too, but for most people making their money as an employee, it's not very practical. We can't all be business owners, good ones anyway. The stock market offers the average Joe a means to invest in businesses without having to do very much, assuming you're buying an index fund and not actively picking stocks, but damn, I'm conflicted about investing in some of those corporations. So what do you think? Just saving gold and make your money through your career or business? Not to get too personal, but do you mess around in the stock market, even if only for lack of better options? Okay, excellent. Very good question, James. Thank you for that. First of all, yes, I have heard about malware bites, which I am assuming is the virusware you're talking about, um, which apparently has corporatereport.com listed as clickbait, and people are warned away from visiting the site. Um, 
Well, welcome to the corporatocracy's plan for dealing with the internet. Uh, we've all known this is coming, and here it comes. It's going to be browser extensions or virusware or that kind of stuff is going to st more and more start to encroach on, well, this this is this is a Russian propaganda site, or this is clickbait, or this is fake news, and it's going to more and more start directing you towards official sources and, and avenues for information. Again, we can all see that writing on the wall. It's just a question of how and when and how quickly they implement it. It will take some time to engineer it into people that they need to be told what sites to go to and what sites not to go to, but it will happen. And although it's all on a voluntary basis at the moment, and it'll be through browser extensions and things you willingly download or at the very least can easily circumvent. Eventually, of course, it's going to be hardwired in so that when you buy a controlled product from one of the FANG corporations, hardware itself, it will undoubtedly prevent you from, uh, from visiting certain sites. And, you know, one day down the road, I don't think this is coming tomorrow, but one day down the road, corporatereport.com and sites like it will be on that list. And, uh, you know, again, this is uh, exactly what will happen because people refuse to actually support <laughs> open source software, open source hardware, uh, and things that you actually control. Uh, as for investing, uh, yeah, no, I don't have a penny invested in the stock market. Uh, I, uh, yes, you're exactly right being conflicted about investing in corporations. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Hey, if you just want to make money, just go and invest in the military industrial complex. There is no way you're going to lose money, uh, in the long term. If you're diversified across a, a number of different military industrial contractors, you will make money as long as the current status quo paradigm holds. And then, you know, who knows how long that's in the cards, but for the time being, you're in the money, you're in the money. I mean, yeah, you'll be funding and investing in the technology for destroying vast swaths of the globe, and undoubtedly that technology will ultimately be turned around and, and used against you. But, uh, I mean, hey, you'll, you'll make some money out of it, right? So again, yeah, I mean, there are ways to make money, but ethical ways are quite a different thing. And uh, I know that there's a lot of people out there who try to cater and invest their investments uh, portfolios to, well, libertarian-minded people or whatever it is, your, your particular niche. But keep in mind that every single one of those people are just trying to make money for themselves and hopefully improve the lives of other people. But mm, you, you always have to take such things with a grain of salt. So I'll put the question out there to people out there. What do you think is a long-term investment strategy? And is there an ethical version of that? Um, I think we're in a controlled, corporate, rigged game system of a corporatocracy that is in bed with the power elite, and th the bankers literally control the money supply. So, I mean, the, the money that we're all chasing after all our lives is just fictitious, not, on, not, on, not even pieces of paper, just ones and zeros in computer systems at this point, and we, we fight and die and kill for, for some of this dirty money that is truly meaningless, but... Hey, it's the way you got to get ahead in society, right? So I get it. I mean, you want to invest for your future and your family and everything, but there's uh, there's precious few ways to do that ethically in our current climate. So I'm interested in people's thoughts on that out there. What are you invested in and why? And what do you recommend? Uh, hopefully we can crowdsource some sort of information that will um, give James some ideas out there anyway. All right, that's going to do it for this 
slightly abbreviated version of Questions for Corbett. I think we still actually managed to go fairly long, but uh, it's a little quicker than usual. As you might have heard, uh, my children are running around in the background today, so uh, they're still sick at home, but I'm taking care of them and recording podcasts for you. Don't say that I don't give my all to this podcast, because I certainly do. And uh, if you appreciate that, I hope you will support this work. Become a Corbett Report member as little as $1 a month. It does make a difference. And uh, as a Corbett Report member, you can log on and and leave your questions for the next edition of Questions for Corbett. That's going to do it for this month. I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the future. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com slash support.